the sense of humility is that you, an individual person, are not going to change the world in a day or even in mm -hmm. your lifetime. This mm -hmm. is so much bigger than you. And at the same time, each person needs to show up. Citizen Podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. Today we're talking to Leila Saad, author, speaker, and teacher on the topics of race, identity, leadership, personal transformation, and social change, and the author of the book Me and White Supremacy. A big theme in this podcast is reckoning, and you can literally hear me doing that throughout the conversation, where I am learning in real time. Because I know this work is constant. Layla calls it a practice, an everyday commitment to interrogate the ways in which we are implicated in white supremacy and a choice to do something different. She says that if you are doing this work and you are still comfortable, then not much has changed. While intellectually you may understand what's going on, if your life hasn't had to change in any significant way, it's not really making a difference. I say this as someone who is examining my own life, how I do this work, even how I manage this podcast. And the question I think all white folks should be asking themselves is what am I willing to risk? What am I willing to give up to put on the line so that we can disrupt the violence that is white supremacy and be an active part of transforming our culture and community? This podcast is calling white folks like myself up to a whole new level of practice and action, one that exists beyond our comfort zone, beyond business as usual, beyond our attachments to power and position. It asks us to trust in something bigger than our individual selves, to believe so strongly in something that we will fight for it no matter what. And if we do that, perhaps we can become the good ancestors we were meant to be. Check it out. Welcome, Leila Saad. So amazing to have you with us. I've been following your work for years and have been sort of anxiously awaiting this conversation because we have so much in common and because I admire your work so much. I'm really excited to be here. So this is in podcast is one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> well, you belong yeah. on it. So thank you so much for saying yes to being in conversation with us. And I have like a long list of questions for you <laughs> um, because there's so much um, about your work that I want to know and I want to understand. And I think our readers are really hungry for, mm -hmm. but I want to start with how I came to know you. Um, I was first introduced to you um, through a blog called, I need to talk to white women about white supremacy. Um, and that's, that's me, by the way, you were speaking to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a really formative piece for me and for so many people uh, because it brought together perspectives in trauma, perspectives in systemic oppression, uh, perspectives in spiritual practice. And one of the things you referenced um, in, in this blog was uh, FLEBS, which I think is a term that Kelly Deals came up with. Yes. It's an acronym which stands for female lifestyle empowerment brand, right? And I feel like this is, these are the goops of the world. Right. Um, and, and you describe it as A, an archetype woman that must comply with um, and embody 
in order to be deserving of rights and resources and a marketing strategy that leverages social status and white privilege to create authority over other women. And so I'd love to know, like, what is the cost of that of that behavior on our society and our collective well-being? Because there's most, there's most, you know, definitely a price right. for embodying that way of being in the world. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. FLEB is a term that Kelly Deals uh, coined and has written about extensively. And I really um, encourage people to go check out her site and her work because um, she really maps that out. But really what I was speaking to was this sort of intersection specifically in this article, article about how um, largely white women who work in the spiritual industry are talking about changing the world, healing ourselves, you know, really creating change in the world, but are doing that on this platform of the female lifestyle empowerment brand, which is really about the empowerment of the individual and not of the collective. And so it marginalizes anyone who doesn't fit into uh, that um, brand. It, it marginalizes anyone who is not white, anyone who is not um, a cisgendered woman, anyone who um, doesn't hold those areas of privileges. And so the cost is not necessarily to the people who are um, able to leverage that because society rewards that. We've it's a benefit. It's, a, it's an absolute benefit. And that's why in the personal growth, personal development, wellness, spirituality industries, you see that the majority of the people who hold the positions of most power, most popularity, um, who gain the most rewards, who are offered the best um, author publishing deals, offered, you know, everything, are usually white people and white women. And so the cost is to people who look like me. The cost is to black and brown people, people who hold identities which have been marginalized. We get pushed to the to the, to the margins. And then the question is, where are all the black and brown people? How come we can't find people to come on our podcast or to speak at our conferences or, you know, to partner with? And that was a myth that really bothered me. Um, it really, um, really bothered me because it, as it became a question that I began to ask um, white women who would invite me onto their shows and their stages and their online platforms when I would ask the question, okay, thank you for inviting me, but are you planning on inviting more black and brown people, especially black women um, who are often the most underrepresented, underrepresented especially dark-skinned black women? The question was always, we would love to have more people like that, but we don't, we don't know any. We don't know where they are. Right. And so it becomes this idea of where the black people and brown people are in hiding somewhere. <laughs> so That's right. There's a room that we're all hidden in. And so the cost is that it creates this, this fake reality where black and brown people are in hiding intentionally, but actually it's that we've been pushed to the margins and cannot find ourselves in those spaces because we are intentionally kept out of those spaces. Well, and it also makes me think about how a lot of this is by design, and yet white yeah. folks don't don't understand that because they don't have the the power analysis, right? Yeah. Ruby Sale says um, inclusion implies that someone owns the table. That's right, right? And white folks own the table of wellness right now. Right. 
And so, and I, and we talk a lot at, about spiritual bypass in our work, and I know that you talk about it also. Um, and I feel like sometimes when people are talking about it, their, their perspective on it is that it's, it's ignorance or it's an oops, and they don't get the, the part where they're actually upholding the right. system that created this problem in the first place. It's not just right. an oops. It's not just negligence. It's an active engagement in upholding the system that created this mess in the first place. Right. Because it takes something that is intended to unify us and, and intended to, you know, spirituality is intended in my eyes, at least to show us all the places in which we are similar and the same to show us all the ways in which we can be connected with each other through the power of love. It takes that which is so pure and sacred and uses it to skip over the realities of the real world, which is that we don't live in a utopia. We don't live in a world where everyone is treated equal and the same. Um, and it's extremely, when used for me, it feels abusive and it feels like a betrayal um, because it takes this thing that matters to me so much, spirituality and faith, and uses it to tell me to be quiet and uses it. It to weaponizes tell black, it. Right. To tell black indigenous people of color to ignore their lived reality and live as if essentially they're experiencing the world the way white people do, the way people with white privilege do, which is not the reality. I really believe spirituality and spiritual practice, deep spiritual practice is a door through which we can really do this work um, because when we look at, if I just talk about my own journey in doing this work, it is hard, hard work. It is heartbreaking work. Your heart aches, your heart feels like it's being torn apart. Where is the place from which you find grounding and hope? For me, it's my faith and my sense of spirituality right? Because I have to look above what we as human beings do to one another to find a place to aim for something better. You know, when it gets tough, when I need to dig deep and find my courage or my, my compassion, my empathy to use my anger in ways which are not destructive, but, you know, have the intention and the aim to clear through so that we can get to the other side. I have to ground it in something that is more than just my, um, my in more than just my humanity, right? And 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 placing my trust in more than what we as human beings do to one another and do to the world. And so, but when we use spirituality in this abusive, manipulative, bypassing way, it just it hurts my heart, you know. Yeah, this feels like where we actually need spirituality to hold the bigness of this conversation and the many contradictions and the paradox. Because I, I, I really appreciate the spiritual perspective you're providing, because I think sometimes it's not that we're debunking the spiritual framework. We're saying that it's, 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 it's actually a lot bigger than we give it credit for. Because there is a spiritual... I mean, we can't just intellectualize race, right? The, the same way that we can't meditate away race. That's right. Um, and, and for me, you know, I call it like the reckoning. The spiritual reckoning is like a white woman of, of understanding 
understanding how white supremacy works, how power works, how dominance works, and under and and then having to locate myself inside those systems and my complicitness and my responsibility. And this is one of the, I think, calls to action in that blog that we're referencing that you make to white women and to flebs um, is, is that actually there, there is a, a great responsibility that we have to reckon with. And there's an action and an engagement that it calls us to do in order to navigate these, these two pieces, right? The, the spiritual truth that, that we are all human, right? Right. Um, and divine. And the, and the relative truth that we're having a very different experience of being alive on the planet right now. That's right. Yeah. I, I love that you use the word reckoning, actually, because I think that's what my work essentially is getting people to do. You know, the, the, the work that I do through me and white supremacy, the 28 day process, getting people to really look at their own personal complicity within the system of white supremacy is a reckoning. And that's very different to a white person coming in and saying, how can I help you? Right? How can I be an ally to you? What actions would you like me to take to show you that I'm not racist? And it's like, no, you actually have to begin by looking at yourself. That is where it begins. Um, that is where the deep, deep work begins. Because if you are trying to approach um, anti-racism from the perspective of white saviorism, and from the perspective of an allyship which is performative or optical, then essentially it just continues to serve you. It's just a continuation of the perpetuation of white supremacy, meaning that black and brown people don't need to be saved, right? Black and brown people are not in the position that they're in because they have done something to put themselves in that position. White supremacy is a system, a paradigm that was created by white people, is upheld by white people. It benefits only white people and people with white privilege. And so that's where the reckoning must take place. And, um, and you just named something that I wanted to go back to because I remembered you did a, a Learn with Layla um, it's like an Instagram live, right thing. Right. And, um, and it was around, I think the question you posed is, is your allyship harmful or helpful? Um, right. and, and this is a conversation we have a lot at Citizen Well, especially with the white folks who have a yearning to show up, right? Like they, right. they, 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 they want to do the inner work and the outer work. Um, but the, the ego, right, and the attachment to our positionality, yes. and it's not even just the inner ego work, it's like we're attached to our position in society, yes. is so powerful that it, I feel like we slip at often, right, into like a performative nature that just repositions us <laughs> in right. a position of authority again. It, is there... Is there such a thing as allyship? I mean, that's like really my question. Like, what yeah. is there a, a, a right practice of allyship, or is it something else? Yeah, I allyship is not a word that I feel comfortable with, um, simply because it gives the impression that you either are or aren't, mm -hmm. or that there is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, and that if you can just get the check boxes right and line them up correctly, then you are in the zone of allyship. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think what that does is um, makes the work of anti-racism shallow. It makes it performative. And it, as you said, continues to uphold the ego. So you're talking, you talked about the sort of outer ego of, of white people wanting to hold that dominance, but then there's the collective ego of white supremacy, which also has this energy that it's trying to maintain and it will do so in the sneakiest of ways, right? It will do so through, yes, very violent, very um, abusive, manipulative ways, which are clearly, we can see them, you know, but then it will do it through other ways, like spiritual bypassing, like white saviorism, in these ways that look like the right actions to take, the good actions to take on the surface, but without um, a deep understanding, as you said, of your positionality, without a deep understanding of contextual history, without a, a deep understanding of yourself and the way that you participate in the system and of how it impacts Black, Indigenous, people of color, without all of that, it's, it's not able to, you're not able to really show up in what I prefer to, you know, refer to as the practice of anti-racism. It's, it's a practice. It's not a, you are doing it or you aren't doing it. It's every day you're showing up and you're trying. And, you know, there was a quote, and I think it's by um, Ijeoma Alu Aluo, mm -hmm. um, who wrote the book, Say I Want to Talk About Race. And I think it was like, I just saw it recently on Instagram. And she said, that the great thing about, I'm paraphrasing. She said, the great thing about, you know, the practice of anti-racism is that you don't have to not be racist. Right in order to practice anti-racism, right. which to me allows people with white privilege to be able to hold the paradigm of both and. Yes, I am racist because I live in a society and a world which is racist, which privileges me because I'm white. It, I could be the nicest, kindest white person in the world and have all black family members and all of my friends are people of color and I am still racist and it is not a reflection of my heart my soul my being it just is what it is mm -hmm. and i can attempt every single day to practice anti-racism mm -hmm. mm -hmm. ibram x kendi just wrote about this and how to be that's an anti-racist right. that's right and that that's was really right. helpful right because i think i equated to i can only claim to be an anti-racist when it's perfect <laughs> And he's saying that's not what it is. It's the practice, right? That's right. And that you can be both. And Robin D'Angelo talks about that too, is the good, bad binary, right? That that's there's right. no good. And there, that I think is actually one of the biggest pitfalls. Someone asked me this question the other day, like, what's the biggest pitfall of like doing this work? And I said, trying to be good at it is the biggest pitfall. And, and where that is most dangerous is in the spiritual world. Yeah. Because so much of the talk is about enlightenment, transcendence you know reaching a stage of you know beyond the normal and so it itself creates I am one of the good ones because I have reached this level of spirituality and they are not because they are still down there in their ego yeah. you just take that and transplant it into into this world and it's the same thing and so there's it's like they parallel each other right they're parallel paralleling each other these um in in what we see in you know the the spiritual world is that the spiritual world x fleb right <laughs> x the female lifestyle empowerment brand which is right. 
attain this level of perfection, essentially. That's right. And that is the most damaging thing to the practice of anti-racism because every day you're going to make mistakes. Not because there's anything wrong with you, not because you're a bad person, but you have lived your entire life in, within the paradigm of white supremacy, your entire life. And through generations past, your ancestors have too. So you're not just going to change it just because you decided to change your mind today that you're not going to be racist anymore and you're going to practice anti-racism. Every day you're going to go back to what you're conditioned to believe is the truth and what you're conditioned to believe is right and correct. And you are going to, you're going to get called out. You're going to get called in. You're going to mess up. You're going to forget. And so you have to have endless amounts of compassion for yourself. You have to have endless amounts of, um, resilience and courage to keep going. And, um, and I struggle with this word, but the word humility is coming to mind. Um, a sense of humility is going to be important because your ego is going to want to keep reasserting itself. Mm-hmm. Why do you struggle with that word? Um, I struggle with the word because I, it's a word when I think about it, it's, it's sustain, it, to me, it's, and I think uh, Maya Angelou spoke about this as well. It's a word where like you're told to, you know, that humility and modesty is like a, the better way of being. But to me, it's just the opposite of being arrogant. It's just two sides of the, two sides of mm. the ego. Like it's one right? more performance. It's a, it's a performance. Like we are all whole human beings right? We don't need to show up and puff our chests out. We also don't need to act like less than we are. Mm, um, I see what you're saying. It's not, so it's about like not smalling down. Right, right. Um, but in this, in this conversation, I think I'm using the word in a, in a slightly different way, which is the sense of humility is that you, an individual person, are not going to change the world in a day or even in mm-hmm. your lifetime. This mm-hmm. is so much bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, each person needs to show up. One of the things that you did in front of this blog that I thought was so brilliant and skilled is before you even you know, began your address to the white woman in the spiritual community, you, um, you provided a list of assumptions, like a really transparent context, if you will, to how you are coming into this conversation. And I want to read an excerpt because it speaks exactly to what you're, you're describing. You said, I'm going to do this imperfectly. I'm not an expert on social justice. I am a spiritual mentor, teacher, and healer who feels strongly about sacred activism. If I say something that is inaccurate, presumptuous, or that shows my own privilege without acknowledging it, I want to apologize in advance. However, Just because I'm going to do this imperfectly does not mean that I should not do it at all. This is a problem that I see so many people struggling with. Their fear of speaking out um, imperfectly or being criticized stops them from saying anything at all. I am not going to allow my fear to do that to me. So my words will be imperfect, but I pray that both the intention and impact of my words are of service. And and that really touched me um, as someone who is uh, constantly trying to take risks and also lives in fear of, yeah. of, of not even just, you know, and I, I'm a, a recovering perfectionist. Um, Same. <laughs> That's so, I had I to work, write that. <laughs> I, work that, I work on that every day. 
Um, but I'm really afraid of causing harm. Yeah. Um, and, and whether intentionally or not. And so I, I wanted to ask you about that because we, we do exist in a culture where we are calling in people, we're calling out people, we're holding people accountable. And I think that's really useful. Like I'm, mm. I'm, I'm actually all for all of that. Um, I think we need to hear it. I think we need to interrogate ourselves. I think, you know, I just think that kind of stirring is helpful if we can be resilient and compassionate in the face of it. But I am wondering like how, how we weigh the risk of showing up and making a mistake and the risk of harming another person, right? And the risk of, of a shutting down and, and silencing ourselves and being too afraid to act. Like, how do you navigate that? How, how, do, how should we practice that? Yeah, I think it, that's all there, right? Um, and all of those things can happen. Um, I think a couple of things are coming to mind and especially this point is especially for people with white privilege who may want to begin having these conversations publicly or, you know, and are scared, what if I mess up, essentially. Um, I would say a huge part of it is, act is actually that you don't need to jump in straight away if you're just entering the conversation like yesterday, right? Because you don't yet know what you don't yet know. And so there is no need to proclaim or to uh, announce, or to, you know, throw, you know, your two cents in two. Um, take your time to understand what, what the issues are, where, how all of this, this whole system of repression, how you are complicit in it, how it plays on you, um, how it's showing up, you know, part of that humility that I spoke about is that holding back on that need to say, me too, me too. I have something to say about this. Mm -hmm. Take a breath, take a moment, really like allow yourself to um, learn, you know, be educated, immerse yourself in spaces where you can learn, not just following people online or reading books, but actually putting yourself in courses, classes, you know, pl places where you can pay black indigenous people of color That's right. for your education um, so that you can have a real visceral experience of that uh, education and that transformation. And then from that place, when you're doing that work for a while and on a deeper level, you begin to understand that as a white person, your job here is not to be a leader of this work. Your job is to, and when I say a leader of this work, what I mean is your job here is not to recreate, recreate once again, the female lifestyle empowerment brand, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the new white teacher of anti-racist work, right? That's not where, where we need white people going. That's right. Right. Where we need white people really showing up is, um, first of all, like supporting the voices of, of black and brown people. Um, both yourself, but also if you have an audience or a platform and that audience and platform can be your family, your right. colleagues at work. You know, um, I get emails all the time from um, like nonprofits and educational institutes who say someone who works here, did your workbook, shared their experiences with it. And now all of us are going to be doing it together. Mm. Right. They're not on Instagram, right? <laughs> they're, but they're in places where them doing that kind of work is really going to change things in that sphere. And so, you know, that sounds friend, a lot like relational organizing. Right. 
my friend um Omkari Williams who you should totally interview too okay. she's amazing um she talks about the power of storytelling and we recently had a conversation about you know how it's important for people to find where they fit in the story of the social justice work and how that has to relate to where they're at right now and not them trying to become someone else right not them trying to become the next voice but actually right here where i'm at with the experiences that i have with the relationships that i have and with what i know and can do what can i say who can i talk to what conversations can I begin or begin to host or be, you know, how, how can I begin to do it in that way? Right. Rather than I'm going to write a blog post called, I need to speak to spiritual white women about white supremacy that goes viral and then, you know, and then possibly mess up and make a mistake. Um, and so again, it's like when we think about, when I think about the dismantling of white supremacy, it operates, white supremacy operates on so many different levels and needs so many different kinds of approaches. And so that's why we need teachers, speakers, and voices who have all different kinds of styles, right? And it's also why we need all different kinds of approaches. And so where you are as an individual, where can you start? And then also just accepting, I'm going to mess up. Like you have to come to a place of acceptance about it because until you do, it's like with anything any endeavor, you know, not to trivialize what we're talking about, but any endeavor where you're attempting to do something new because you don't know what you don't know, you are going to mess up. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and you have to accept that messing up is not the worst thing that's going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that you mess up and you will still be protected by your privilege. It's funny because, right. <laughs> and there's still cover and there's still Absolutely. cover. I was going to say the second part of that for me, cause that's the part of humility that I actually love. Um, in practice is like embracing the, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know and understanding how systems and condition socialization and conditioning works. Right. Cause I'm, I'm really clear that I'm going to be on this path for the rest of my life to unlearn all that right. I have learned and, and all of the ways in which I've been indoctrinated. And the second part of that to me is I should have known that. Right. And not from a shameful, like, like, like with, it's just a fact. I should right. have known. It's not okay that I didn't know. Robin D'Angelo said this in her book and, 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 and it slapped me across the face. She was like, how is it possible you did not know? That's right. And I was like, for real, how is it possible? Right. So there's two parts to that for me. There's the like, holy shit, I didn't know. And I, right. and I don't know what I don't know, but it does. I can't hide behind that. Cause I'm, right. I've got cover. The second part is how dare me <laughs> that I right. didn't know. And I need to catch up now. Right. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. 
And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can join us at patreon.com slash c-t-z-n-w-e-l-l. I want to get into another muddy area um, because you talk about this and and one of the things... um, that you just named and and I've I've been reckoning with um, a lot lately is there does seem to be an appropriation that's happening of anti-racist work amongst white Mm -hmm. people. Um, That's not dissimilar to cultural appropriation of spiritual practice. Um, And you define, you describe spiritual colonization as uh, taking the essence of a people while discarding the people themselves. And I think that's one of the best articulations I've ever heard that really captures the violence of appropriation on people. And I say this as a yoga teacher, by the way, of 15 years, who is struggling to find my place um, in this work. And I know there are other teachers that are listening right now that are also white teachers that are also contemplating this question. And I'm even wondering, like, is there even a place for me in this work? Is it even appropriate for white folks to be, you know, in this work? And if so, how? And so I'm just curious, like, what are some questions that um, folks who are engaged in these practices that are, that, are perha- that are perhaps not descendants of that culture can be asking themselves so that they can interrogate their relationship to these practices so as not to um, perpetuate any further harm? Um, I talk about this in the new um, updated version of me and white supremacy and some of the, so I have a list of of questions that are there. Um, Yeah. So, so one of the things that I encourage people to do first, because I think so often when people like yourself who are white, who are engaged in a spiritual practice from a culture that is not their own, you become aware of this dynamic. The first question becomes like, do do I have to give it up? You know, do I, like, am I causing harm just by practicing it? Like, what do I do? And I think the first thing to do actually is to start looking at the bigger history between the culture that you belong to and the culture from which the practice that you are, you know, questioning, what is the relationship between those two cultures historically? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Because you need to understand, not that me, Carrie, I'm doing something wrong right now, but that historically, the people from which I come from, this is the way that they have interacted with those people. Mm, that's a fascinating perspective, yes. And so that gives you that bigger perspective. So you take yourself and your ego and you're, but I really like yoga. You take yourself out of it, right? And you begin to look at the violence really on a bigger level. Mm-hmm. On a systemic level. On a systemic level, right? And so you, so it removes that kind of like, Oh, you know, that part that just wants to cling and gets you to get out of it and begin looking at the bigger picture. And so, and as you begin to understand yourself as belonging to to the race that has dominated over, discriminated against, marginalized that race, and then you begin to look at the now. Okay, how does it show up now? How does 
the race that I belong to, how do we interact now with people from that race? Because we say we really get so much from this practice and we are so thankful for it and it's completely changed our lives, but we continue to discard those people. That's right. We continue to discriminate against those people. And the thing is, you can't have that practice without those people. That's right. Right? And so, again, though, I don't have this answer of should you do it, should you not do it? And no, so in the case of yoga, no Indian person is going to be the authority on whether or not you can practice yoga, teach yoga, right? But what you can begin to do is begin to understand this issue on, on this multi, multi-layer levels, right? Which then brings you into, first of all, a much more, um, you have a much better critical understanding of what actually is happening. And then you can begin to make different choices around both how you practice that practice and how you interact with the people from that race who, who originated that practice. Right. Because yoga has helped everyone. Right. It's helped so many people. And so it's not about can I but why can't I have this thing? Right. That's not what the issue is. Right. The issue is that in the yoga world, who we see overrepresented as the leaders of yoga are white women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so many times, you know, I've heard so many stories of Indian people who will go into yoga classes that are taught by white women and they don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Which is like the ultimate irony. Right. And I think about, um, um, having that critical analysis, you talk a lot about needing more critical thinking and spiritual work. Um, and then the next step, at least in my practice feels like, it, it calls us to be in a different pose just to use like a yoga analogy or a different stance. Like for me, it's about seating positionality, like stepping mm-hmm. off the platform, getting out of the way, stepping back. Right. Right. Um, and right. Like it's not just, a, sometimes I think white folks think it's just about including more, but they don't get out of the way. Right. And, and I just think that's tricky. That's, it's like, we're so insidious how attached we are to like our position of power. And, 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 and in my experience as like an organizer, I find the reckoning point, the threshold for lots of white folks is actually the point at which they have to give something up. And that's when allyship goes out the window. Oh yeah. And some other kind of rationale steps in as to why they need to do what they need to do, right? And I say we and I, including me, you know, I've, I've definitely done that um, and caught myself. And so anyway, so I do, um, I do think critical, critical thinking and new pose, like new move. There has to be new behavior, right? Because yeah. there is a lot of like people claiming to be woke and having a really good social media game out there who actually aren't taking a new pose. Right, right. So (laughs) something comes to mind just now, you know, um, there was a person last year, I remember who had a conversation with and they were, you know, their, their account, their social media account, if you looked at it was, they were a person who holds white privilege, their social media account was full of pictures of black women, right? It was all about 
the allyship, but then the way that they acted behind the scenes, it was brought to my attention that they had behaved in a way that wasn't a reflection of what they were putting out into the world, right? And that actually this wasn't even the first time this had shown up. Um, that is not to say this person is a bad person, we need to throw this person away, they need to be canceled, nothing like that. But it just speaks to once again that you can even change your position, which is they weren't even featured on their account. They right. were really putting forward black women and yet, yeah. you know, those, um, my friend Catrice Jackson calls them weapons of whiteness, Yeah, right? She calls them weapons of whiteness. They're still there. You come locked and loaded anytime you come into an interaction, yes. right? That's what she speaks about. I really want to encourage people to, uh, to read her book. Um, I think it's called Antagonist Advocates and Allies. Um, and so, you know, you might step off the podium, you might back away, and still the white gaze itself is harmful. Right. Because the white gaze says, mm, I wouldn't do it like that. Mm, if you'd only speak in this way. There's a better way to do it. I have a better, a better way. way. Right. Mm, if you do it that way, then you're going to lose X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. Right? So, again, it's like, yes, it's about changing positionality, but the way in which you're going to be required to change for the entire thing to crumble is so much more dynamic and um, unfathomable, unfathomable to you than you realize. Because it's, you know, a, a lot of people, most white people, I would say, are, are uncomfortable even with the slightest discomfort of the releasing of privilege. The slightest has always been their privilege and their right. 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 So the, 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 the slightest releasing feels like a huge burden. Right. And so then what happens is the more they release, the more white people release, it's like that desire for, but will you recognize me for what I'm doing? Will you reward me for what I'm doing? What is the payoff that I'm going to get for this? And that this brings me back to that spiritual component, because for me, the payoff is you get to live in a way that honors yourself as a human being and honors other human beings. That is the payoff. Is you get, you to get to know yourself beyond, you get to right. know yourself beyond these constructs. That's right. Which are, you know, very much at play, but aren't real. Right. Right. Like they're really happening and yet they're right. constructs. They're made up. Right. Right. Because if you just imagine it for a moment that it was the reverse, that white people are actually globally the minority and black privilege is what rules the world right? So you're in a position where you, but you only know white privilege. So you'd be clawing away to get at, you need to give us some of that privilege. That's it's right. not right that we're living in this way. Well, white but people the, are the global minority. Right, right. But, <laughs> and yet, and yet I mean, are the dominant power holders, right? That's true. Are. Are the dominant power holders. And so that, you know, that idea you know, even to me as a black person is like wild because we, we don't know that world where melanated people are the power holders. We don't know that world, right? right? And so there would be the same rise up that we have now where it's like, things need to change. This is not right. This, is ne this needs to be dismantled. People are dying, right? But it's, you know, because we're so used to it, and the way that it is that 
we take the small slights and the big ones and there is this work to you know to change things but there is also this um uh heaviness like this gravity to keep everything the same as it is right and you, so i often get the question sorry to interrupt you I've, i often get the question like do you think it can be dismantled in our lifetime or what do you think and i'm like you're not looking at what's the big picture right now this isn't a problem that turned up yesterday right this isn't a problem and and this isn't a an issue that people have not been um working on for centuries and yet we're still here in 2019 the kind of things that you see happening that's right right and so release the need for okay we're going to do all these things and then by the end of our lives everything's going to be different no we, we we just keep going right <laughs> we just keep going until the until it's done until we, we don't know what that is and create the new thing i mean that right. just that reminds me of like we in America have such a narcissistic perspective, even of like racism and white supremacy. And we think white supremacy is 400 years old. Um, right. But white supremacy is not native to America and goes way back. And, and I think you offer a really unique perspective because you were born in Wales. You've lived in England and um, Africa and you now live in Qatar. Right. Um, and I think it's rare that we actually have a global conversation mm. about white supremacy and about how racism thrives um, around the world, not just in America, because we're so um, we're such navel gazers here, which is, you know, I think a symptom of the larger problem we keep talking about. But I'm curious, like, what is for you, from your perspective, which is global, what is similar or different about the way in which you've experienced white supremacy around the world. Yeah. So I think, you know, we have to understand that you're absolutely right. White supremacy is not a localized issue to North America and did not just start 400 years ago. This idea of white dominance is global and has affected the world in all different kinds of ways. So we have to look at, you know, um, colonization and the impacts of that. We need to look at the slave trade in which it operated in different parts of the world that were not North America. And then we also need to look at like culturally, you know, countries will talk about these topics in different ways, but it's the same thing. It's just expressed in different ways. Right. And so for example, in the UK, which is where I'm from and where my, my brothers live, you know, the conversation around racism is not held in the same way that it is around in the US. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? It doesn't mean that it doesn't impact people. A lot of the internal work that I am doing on myself, my own inner healing, is directly linked to the internalized anti-Black oppression that I learned as a child growing up in the UK, right? That, that impacted myself concept around what it meant to be me a black muslim woman in the world that even till now and i speak about this often that even till now despite all the things i've quote unquote achieved or done in the world that still impacts me and i still continue to work on it right and so just because the conversation isn't held in the same way as it is in the us doesn't mean it's not happening happening globally even your neighbors the Canadians often say to me, well, you know, but we're not like the Americans. Yeah, but you have a history, right? Big that time. Has, that has impacted the indigenous folk there 
as well as impacted people of color and black people there. Same with the UK, same with different European countries, right? So just, it's easy, it's easy, I think, for, as you said, like the, U, like the USA to think it's only happening here because you are, as a country, very self-focused. But then it's also easy for the rest of the world to say, well, that's an American problem. It's not a problem that we have here. And yet I have friends who live in all different kinds of countries and they're like, this is how racism affects me. Right. So either we're living in two different worlds or white supremacy just continues to assert itself in different ways. That's right. Right. I love this. Um, a big part of the spiritual practice that I think you're calling us to do the inner spiritual practice around who are we and how did we get here? Like what shaped us, which are some of the questions you just uh, mentioned asking yourself, um, feel essential to the reckoning. And you have a podcast called The Good Ancestors Podcast, which is amazing, by the way. If you're all not listening to it, you should get on it right away. Um, and, and it's really about, um, and correct me if I describe it wrong, it's about you know, asking your guests to honor and include the ancestors that they carry with them and how those ancestors have shaped them um, and how they want to yeah. carry and how they should carry that legacy forward. And, um, and I'm excited because I'm going to be in conversation with you in a couple of weeks on this podcast. And, and it's funny because uh, that question was asked of me on a panel a couple of years ago um, at, a, at an amazing co conference called Amplify and Activate. And the question was something like, what are the, what are the legacies or what, what, what is the lineage that you want to carry forth that your ancestors passed down to you? Yeah. And I really struggled with it because my answer was none. Like, like there's a lot that I don't want to carry forward as the descendant of like colonizers. And, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know if my family um, owned slaves, but I know that many of them were racist. I know many of them assimilated. I, like I know from what I know, it's, it's not yeah. a good history. Right. And it's not something that I'm proud of. And I'm struggling with how to carry I don't want to call them my bad ancestors, <laughs> um, but, but, but how to integrate, if you will. Yeah. Right. The, the, the yeah. many different people that have shaped us, that we carry with us, right. That have yeah. blazed the trail in whatever way. Um, and in my particular way, it wasn't all good um, at an, on any level. And so I'm curious as to like, given what you've learned in this conversation through your podcast with all of these different yeah. people, how do we hold that complexity? Yeah. So um, I'm smiling. And the reason that I'm smiling is, you know, it, in Good, Good Ancestor podcast, I mainly interview black people and people of color. And then I reserve a few spots per season for white people. So you're, I'm going to be interviewing you soon. Um, uh, I've interviewed I'm Robin. I'm so grateful uh, for yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've interviewed Robin D'Angelo. Um, in the past, I've interviewed Glennon Doyle. Um, I've interviewed um, uh, the Krista um, from uh, Guerrilla Feminism. Uh -huh. And it's, it's really interesting, the difference between the answers that the majority of my guests who are Black and people of color give, you know, because we have a real sense of resilience and pride and... Um, yeah, pride is the word I think that really comes forth, 
when we talk about our ancestors because we know what they have gone through, especially if they if the person that I'm interviewing is a, a descendant of slaves or of enslaved Africans. Um, they carry that with a sense of pride, whereas the white people I interview really struggle with this question. And, you know, like that discomfort in, in, in just in a small way, you know, it makes me smile because on so many of the podcasts that we hear that are very popular, you know, white people are always the ones that are held up as the inspirations, the, this is what, you know, this is what I bring to the table. And in this question, it's been really interesting seeing white people really squirm around this question and totally. really have to really like hustle with it. And, you know, because they don't want to express pride. And often, because the question that I ask is who are the ancestors um, uh, living or transition societal or familial who have influenced you on your journey? So I'm not just talking about in your totally. lineage. Right. But in, in our world of global ancestors and what often happens is, you know, after having that same thing that you just said, I really struggle with talking about my own ancestors, but here are the black people who've really inspired totally. me. Totally. Right. Because yeah. that's where we're all leaning to. And so mm. I think just like everything else that white people are str uh, struggling in, in air quotes. Yeah, um, that's right. This moment, reckoning with, um, that's a question that you really need to reckon with. Right. Um, I personally, I think there is space for honoring the individual characteristics, traits, uh, strengths, sorry, um, traits and achievements that your ancestors um, may have, uh, you know, basically passed down to you, which have nothing to do with them as white people, which is, you know, is a funny thing to say because they are white, right? But like, for example, one of the things that I have been passed down from my father from is like, he's really good at communicating. He's a really good writer and a really good speaker. And it's something that I get from him. And it's something that I'm really trying to teach my daughter about now as well, right? That has nothing to do with us being black or African or Arab or Muslim or anything else. It's just, it is his strength. He has passed it down to me. I will pass it down to my children, yes. right? So. In that same way where people of privilege are reckoning with themselves, the aim is not to obliterate yourself, right? The aim is not to, in my, in my world at least, the aim is not for white people to fall over in shame, you know, completely like um, devoid themselves of, of everything that makes them who they are in an aim to be anti-racist that you can still honor those parts of yourself and accept, yes, I'm racist. I have ancestors who were racist. You know, uh, that is the lineage that I come from. My work as I understand it now is to do the work of changing that, right? But I can still honor that from my grandmother, I got this, from my great, great, whoever, I got this. I just think there's a way to hold the both and. Um, just simply because in my own inner work in on this journey, one of the biggest lessons I have had to learn for myself first is to see myself as a whole human being, no matter what the world tells me. No matter what the world that is anti-Black and misogynistic and Islamophobic tells me about who I'm supposed to be, 
I have to learn to see myself as a whole human being and to hold all of my humanity. And so when I hold all of my humanity, I'm better able to see you in all of your humanity. And there is the spiritual practice. And there is the spiritual practice. And so, um, and again, I just want to emphasize, this is just my journey. This is my path. I'm not saying this is what everyone should be aiming for. This is just the place that I have come to in this is that I have had to learn how to see myself as a whole, whole human being to hold all of my humanity, every single part of it, especially the parts of it that I don't like or try to hide or don't want people to see. I have to own all of that too. And so when I start to own it within myself, then I have to accept it within other people, right? And so I can see you as, yes, you're a white person, you hold white privilege. You're not a safe person for me to be around because, not because you're a bad person, but because of all these things that come with white supremacy and white privilege. And you're really good at this. You're really good at that. You really have that. You know, you're really talented at that. You know, you really did that. I, I have to hold both. That is my journey in this. That feels radical to me too, especially, you know, holding the whole of our humanity, especially in a culture that tells us that we can't be whole, that tells us that we need to reject parts of us, right? Um, Whether it's our womanhood or our race or, right, like that we're, or imperfection, right? Or the, or rest, (laughs) like we have to reject rest, you know what I mean? Like, like actually, and and I do see that, um, I do see that as like, so significant in the work that you're doing and in the call around the good ancestor podcast is that it's a, it's really a call to reclaim the whole of who we are. Cause to me, rejecting my, my bad ancestors air quotes is, is actually to deny where I come from. That's right. Right. And it's, and it's more like, well, I'm not, that's not me, you know, (laughs) I don't, why do I have to take responsibility for other people? Right. And it's like, no, that's all me. All of that has right. shaped me. That's a part right. of who I am. I come from that. Yeah. The same way that I come from 400 years of slavery yeah. in America. The same way that I come from colonizers who came over right. to this country and took land and participated in a genocide right. of an entire group of people. Right. So like to me, that's part of the inner work is the reclaiming of the whole yeah. truth and nothing but the whole right. truth. Um, right. That, that and not be- from a place of, not from a place of pride or, you know, or um, it's not pride and it's not that, hum- that other type of humility that we were talking about, right? But yeah. as you said, just owning the fact of it, the truth of it, That's right. and that that has shaped who you are, how you see the world, how you interact with other people, and that what you are working on now as a living ancestor right now in the world is how do I reckon with that and what do I need to do from there? That's right. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that, you know, this is that that you're in this work and you're you're calling all of us in in this particular way and just to give folks an idea of the impact that you've made you know after you posted that blog um which was after charlottesville you held a challenge called um me and white supremacy that how many people participated in that instagram challenge uh, so many. i don't know how many people uh well, what I, what I do know is I think when that challenge started, I had around 19,000 um, Instagram followers. And by the time it finished, it was close to 40,000. Yeah. Um, and so... That's a good is, metric. 
Right. And, and what was interesting about it, you know, and again, this goes back to my relationship with God and, and my spirituality was that that wasn't a planned thing. It wasn't something that I mapped out. It was something that came to me literally the night before in one download, the entire thing. Um, and I just, right before going to sleep said, we're going to do this tomorrow. And in my, in my mind, because, you know, my mentor talks about, um, moving at the speed of inspiration. That's what I did. You know, you hear the call and you just follow, you're just taking dictation and you're just following. Yeah. Um, because of that, I didn't question, Hey, should there be a registration process for this? Hey, uh, is this going to be like the safest thing for, you know, other black people and, and people of color to see like, Hey, uh, are you thinking about the amount of emotional labor you're about to, to do? None of that occurred to me at all. Um, and we started day one and I was like, Oh, this is what I've done. You know? Oh shit. <laughs> and so, you know, and at the same time, I could feel the presence of the divine holding it in its entirety. And I knew something bigger than me was going on. And I knew that I was held and that I would be led through it. And so it was a huge challenge. Uh, it was a 28 day process. It, you know, I had to take a break, um, midway through. And my husband often reminds me, he said, you, you really like blood, sweat and tears because he said, I remember you were like, I don't know you if were I can all continue in. this. You were all in. I remember like your whole body, mind and spirit was Everything. like in that process. Um, and I remember you saying, I need to, t I need to, I need to pause. Yeah. Um, and really appreciating the teaching in that and the honesty and the modeling. Right. Yeah. What, what so, were some of those yeah. lessons that you learned? You said you, you learned, like, did you, like, were there things that you were like, oh, I won't do that again? <laughs> well, I'll never do that challenge ever again. <laughs> uh, not like that. Um, I, you know, I learned that to hold that kind of space is an, an incredible expenditure of emotional um, and intellectual labor. And that, you know, yes, at the time, I don't regret anything. I, I, I don't take back anything, yeah. nothing. It was what it was supposed to be. And at the same time, it's so easy for people with white privilege to take for granted what it takes to hold that kind of space. Totally. And so I'm very clear in myself that anytime I hold space for any kind of education or learning or anything transformational work it is going to be in an environment which i you know am able to um make sure that uh keeps me safe and grounded and honors my labor honors my time and where my boundaries will not be dishonored or disrespected mm -hmm. right um another thing that i learned and this was on day nine which was the day that we did about you and black women that was the day that I cried. I hadn't cried up until that point. And then we reached that day and it was for everybody a really tough day. But the reason that I cried was I had to really reckon with, this is what white people really think of us and of me. And what did I do to deserve this? You know, and it brought up um, so many memories of childhood and so many memories of feeling discarded, um, feeling like an afterthought, feeling like a threat, even though I wasn't doing anything wrong. 
um, some of the things that were really, that were coming out of um, people's, you know, comments as they were typing about how they really feel about black women. It was something that I need, it was things that I needed to read, right? I really needed to see, I really needed to understand the nature of it, right? I needed to understand white people, when they see black women, this is what they see. They might not even know that they see it mm-hmm. until you dig underneath a little bit and then it all comes out. But this is what's going on. So everything that you thought, maybe I'm imagining it or maybe I'm reading too much into it, you're not. It's actually the reality. And that was a hard slap across the face. But I think for me and I know for many Black women who also were observing and also found it really triggering and upsetting, And at the same time, they were like, thank you. Because it gave them a sense of freedom. Now I know. Mm -hmm. Now I know. So I know that I'm not imagining it. And now I can operate Mm -hmm. from a place of loving myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny because you're just making me reflect on the role of truth telling in this work. Yeah. Um, And... And, and how, how we've, we've been invested in living in an illusion and, yeah. not, and not wanting to see. Um, and yeah. I say that as a white woman who, you know, like spent many, many years of my life um, choosing not to see. Right. Um, and, and how much I've learned from the radical truth-telling of teachers like you and, and also just acknowledging the just sheer generosity um, of your even willingness to do that, knowing the cost. Right. And I just thank you for saying that. And I also really want to like drive home that point about the cost, because I know so many, um, especially white women, white people, but especially white women who follow teachers such as myself and and writers such, such as myself and see us in that work and have that sense of gratitude and you know there is that support but not realizing the the cost that's right right um and it's huge and you know i choose to the way that i following the amount of emotional labor that i did during that challenge the way that i choose to show up on my social media platform changed after that And what I mean by that is after that, I chose to no longer do free education online for white people. That's right. You know, and and there are teachers that do use their space intentionally in that way, you know, many of whom are my peers and the work that they're doing is really important, but they understand that there is a cost to that and they put what they need to in place to be able to hold that and still do their work. But for me personally, it's just not a price I'm willing to pay anymore. And I appreciate you saying that because I, I don't think truth is the end of it. I think reconciliation is required too. And part of reconciliation is acknowledging what you just named, that there's a huge burden um, on like the bodies and beings of, of folks who choose to do this, um, especially folks who are most impacted like yourself. And that reparations has to be a part of this formula, that it's not just about truth. It's about compensating folks for their labor, um, emotional, spiritual, physical, intellectual, all of it. 
Um, right. and, all, and, and I think reparations is part of it too. It's not just a transaction of like, I want to pay you for right. your labor. It's a, it's a, right. it's a, a historical transaction. It's a, we need to make good right. on, on the, le- the legacy of harm that has enabled white people to thrive and benefit yeah. for so long. And, and that it's really up to us to initiate those reparations right. and, and to support and to celebrate and uplift and resource um, and appreciate the work of, yeah. of, of like yours and so many others. I mean, um, and I just like, I've, it's funny, Michelle Cassandra Johnson um, was on the podcast recently and she said, and I was talking to her about benefiting and how, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I interrogate myself all the time around like, am I benefiting from being in these conversations? And I finally was like, fuck, yes, of course I'm benefiting. Like I have like benefited my spirit and my humanness has completely benefited from saying yes to this work and from being in relationship um, in this work. And, um, and I, and I felt guilty for saying that because I was like, I'm not allowed to benefit, but oh my God, like I've gotten so much for my soul. And that's not why I'm in this work, but it, it would be, um, it would be unfair and untrue for me to not say that, to not admit that like, I'm a better person. And and Rachel Cargill was on the podcast and she says, you can't be in it for self-improvement. And I'm like, yes, I totally agree. And and I'm, and I just, it, it is really true too, that I'm a better yeah. human being because I'm choosing to do this work. Yeah. Um, I have so many things that I want to say about that. I completely agree with Rachel. And I talk about this as well in my work, which is that you will benefit from this work. But that is not the reason that you are That's doing right. this work. That's it's right. not the reason why I put my work together. It's not the reason why I'm asking you to do it. If you're seeing it as a self-improvement project or another way for you to achieve some sort of spiritual good person status of enlightenment, then once again, you're back in white supremacy, right? <laughs> once again, you found yourself back at square one. It's about power um, again. It's, it's, it's about power again. So it's not about you, but because it's about the humanity and the dignity of people, every person benefits, That's right? right? Because, it's, because it's pure. It's about humanity and it's about dignity. Um, and so everyone benefits. Um, uh, what did I, there was another thing I wanted to say. Um, oh, you were talking about reparations and I completely agree. And I think, especially for those of us who are having these conversations on social media, which many of us are right. That many white people will think if I like your posts, if I comment something nice about you on your post, you know, if I tell you, you look nice or, you know, these are all the ways in which if I repost you, if I repost you, if I send you a PayPal donation, whatever, that those are my ways of paying reparations. And no, that is not what reparations are. Um, you know, and I, I want to, make it very clear i'm not a descendant of enslaved africans so you know the reparations um, conversation is not one for me to um you know hold space for or talk with any kind of authority or anything about but i just want to make it really clear that the um exchange for what white people are receiving for what we are giving is not the same Mm -hmm. it's not the same Mm -hmm. Right. And so there is this way in which black women are also held up as these super women. Right. And so 
white women will often say, well, you inspire me or, you know, you've made me more courageous or you've helped me to use my voice. And that's all well and good. But once again, it's a taking because I haven't been improved by it. Mm -hmm. I haven't been inspired by it. I haven't found a way to use my voice in the relationship that we are having on the social media platform in this conversation. So I just want white people to be really aware of that, that it's still a one way thing, right? Um, It's why for me, I'm very intentional about, I will only teach my work in books, in classes, in spaces for which I can be compensated for it. And so it's, it's more clean for me. Yeah. Right. Um, Because often, like we talked about how white supremacy can be really wily. Another way that it can try and show up is if I just load you with like love bomb you, just load you with compliments. You know, that is my anti-racism. That is my payment for your labor. That's right. And it's not. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. Is there, is there, um, and this is not one of those, like, what's one thing white people can do? Like that to me is the most absurd thing to, to to ask, like, what's like, it's, this is an everyday, like every moment of your life practice, as far as I'm concerned to undo this. Um, it's sort of like saying, what's one thing we can do for climate change (laughs) at the end of our days? You know, that's just silly nonsense. Um, but I, but I'm curious about what is that threshold? that you're naming, that goes beyond the allyship that we talked about, that goes beyond um, like likability and social media engagement, um, that goes beyond taking so that we can be yeah. more conscious. Is it displacement of power? Is it, um, uh, is it reparations? Is it redistribution of resource like what is that lot because I do feel like we need to move the line a little bit for white yeah, folks yeah. um because yeah, so, we're hanging back and we need right. to move to, we need to move the line up and we need right. to get to a, a new down if you will to use like a yeah. football terminology and so what do you think that that new threshold is um that we should be aspiring to I, th- I think the danger in well this is kind of shooting myself in the foot because my work is about self-reflection, right? That's what me and white supremacy, the book, the process is about. It's the process of the deep reckoning that you spoke about the individual. And, and a, a lot of times people are now doing it in groups and circles that reckoning with what is this thing and how are we complicit in it? The danger for me, and it would show me that people haven't are not really doing the work. The danger for me would be it just stops there at the self-reflection stage at the, I feel so improved by this stage. I feel so much better about myself. Um, I think that threshold is about the redistribution of power and the, if you, if you are doing this work and you are still comfortable, then not very much has changed. It means, it means that intellectually you've understood what's going on, but you haven't actually lost anything from it. Your life hasn't had to change in any significant way. Um, you haven't take, had to take any risks that put you at a disadvantage so that black and indigenous people of color can be at an advantage. Um, You still get to stay, you you get to understand the issues, you get to talk about them with nuance and 
um, complexity. But other than that, things have mostly stayed the same in your life, in your day-to-day -day life. So I think a, a lot of times people think it's about being able to use the most quote-unquote woke language to be able to do the call-outs of other white people, um, to be able to um, spearhead a new thing that is all about social justice, right? But your actual life is still pretty much the same. That's right. That means the threshold hasn't been breached. And so white supremacy gets to be understood, but it doesn't get changed. Well, and that, that reminds me of the spiritual practice because what has inspired me to have skin in the game and, and throw down has been um, that I'm, I'm, I'm invested in a, another vision of humanity that's bigger than my individual positionality. Right. Right. And once I reckoned with that, I was like, well, this is, this actually feels like a, like I, I want to make that bet, <laughs> right. right? That, that collective liberation and well-being, that the ability for everyone to thrive and be their yeah. most whole and authentic self is more important and more valuable than whatever attachment I have to my like, puny, right. you know, piece of pie. Um, right. And it's funny because I that there's that quote that it's um, um, I forget how it goes, but something around um, equal rights is not pie. There's that that that, that <laughs> meme, and I'm kind yeah. of like, but it kind of is, okay? Like that's not to say that like we don't have an abundance mentality, but like we need to be willing to like give something up in order to like right. correct. Um, my friend Reverend Jackie Lewis um, says. Um, Justice uh, cor corrects anything that is in the way of love. Mm. Oh, I love that. And it's like, we need to be all about that correction, right? right. In, every, in our personal lives, in our choices, in our behavior, in our finances, in our politics, and in our spiritual practice. Right. Um, you know, we, we had, this is my last question for you, and I feel like this is the right place to end. We had um, Adrienne Marie Brown on the podcast, and... Um, she talked about um, Octavia Butler. And I know that you're, you're a fan as well. Thanks um, to Adrienne Marie Brown. Oh, yay. So there we go. There's some. Because I had never heard of Octavia Butler until I, until I started listening to End of the World podcast. Yeah, which is like. And they one just of my talked about podcasts. her constantly. And yeah. I was like, who is this Octavia Butler? Yeah, she changed my life. And I love that Adrienne and, and Octavia Butler use science fiction to imagine the more beautiful world that we haven't known yet um yeah. and the vision of who we can be together and and sometimes i think we forget um to center that yeah right we're because we're so and for good reason right we're so caught up in unpacking and dismantling and unlearning yeah that we leave out the part where we get to actually imagine something better um, and the way that I think about that is I, I think people like you should be imagining that more beautiful world <laughs> um, that allows for everyone to thrive. So I'm just wondering, like, do you have a vision that you hold that mm -hmm. guides your work, right? That is like the true north, if you will, um, that keeps you going, especially when it gets hard and when you get tired of the more beautiful world that we haven't known yet, that we're yet to become. 
I love that we've ended with this question because it brings two things which I'm really passionate about, Octavia Butler and being a good ancestor. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, I was introduced to, I'm looking up here because I've got my stack of Octavia Butler books up there. Um, I was introduced to Octavia Butler through Adrian Marie Brown's work. Um, and it was during a time that I was doing this work and having these conversations online that was really burning me out. It was before me and white supremacy. So it was after I need to talk to spiritual white women, but before me and white supremacy. And I was angry as hell every day. I was mad. I was, I mean, I look back at pictures of myself from that time and I don't look well. Um, I look like if the virus of white supremacy has infected me, that's what I looked like. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really struggling because I was like, this is a nightmare that we can't wake up from. And it actually doesn't matter how many times and how many days online I try and educate white people and fight with white people online. Nothing is going to change. This is how it's been and this is how it's going to be. And that's it. So I had reached a point of defeat, essentially. And my imagination was shut down. My sense of hope was shut down, everything. And so I I decided to you know, buy these books. Um, I started off with the the parable series, the parable of the sower and the parable of the Mm -hmm. talents. And the protagonist, you know, not to spoil it for anyone, there's a protagonist called uh, Lauren Oya Olamina. And it, the series chronicles her life from uh, a young girl all the way up to, you know, uh, cronehood, essentially. Um, And, it shows it, she she lives in a dystopian time um, and she lives in a time where basically everything's gone to shit and the world is falling apart and there is no more hope. There is everything is gone to shit. And yet she starts channeling these verses and these um, quotes and these sayings and these philosophies which she begins to put together in this book and her life's mission throughout this story is to basically carry out the mission that she believes that she has been given and in reading that book my whole life basically changed Um, and that's I know that sounds really like cliche but it really did especially when it came to this work because here was a girl and a woman who lived in a time where there was no hope and where what she was saying sounded wild. What she was proposing were the next stages for humanity just didn't make sense within the reality of what the world was right now, right? And, but she carried through with it, through all the hardships, through all the tribulations, through all the pain, she held onto it. And it gave me a map it gave me a blueprint and a model for what it looks like to believe so strongly in something that it actually doesn't matter what the reality is on the outside. Mm -hmm. If you have that sense of faith and knowing that you keep going no matter what. And so that became that sort of, it, it, it it woke me up and it became the place from which I began to rebuild a new way of how I was going to show up um, as a sort of leader in this work and as someone who, you know, has a voice and has a platform. And that became 
really pivotal for me um, that in this world of make-believe, right, in this world of science fiction, I was able to find something that made the most sense to me. Um, and so that is part of what keeps me going. And then the other part of it is that as a parent, I just want to help create a world in which my children know that who they are is honored, you know, that who they are matters, that I'm doing my part as person responsible, co-responsible with my husband for making sure that they have everything they need in this lifetime. And so it's my, um, it's my duty and it's my responsibility to do that. Um, I would do anything for my children, anything. And this is a huge part of that. So those are the two things that really like anchor me when I'm like, how are we, what are we supposed to do right now? Where are we supposed to go from here? Um, And, you know, I know a lot of people will look at, um, people who are in this work who are seen as leaders and look to us as sort of the guide or where are we supposed to go or what is the next step that we're supposed to make. And I really just want to remind people that we're human beings too. We're trying to figure it out. You know, we're really trying to figure it out as well. And we're really trying to do our best to use what we have to be able to, to show people. But it, for me, it starts from within, like, and it always has, I want to heal. I don't want to feel less than because I'm a black person and a woman. I don't want to feel like I don't belong. So I'm going to work on my healing and then everyone else gets the ripple effect of that. Mm-hmm. And that shows out in the way that I show up in my work. So if I'm able to show up from a place of hope and inspiration and faith and compassion, empathy, wisdom, any of those things, it's because I work so hard to cultivate it within myself. First, for myself first and then everyone else gets the results of that i love that and i just i just want to say because i really listen to what you are saying but i really learn from who you are being and what you are embodying (laughs) and um and so just know that all that that you just named the investment yeah. that you're making. And in that your... is what it means to me to, to be a good ancestor. Yeah. And that's felt is I guess what I was going to say. And it's not just felt by me. I mean, um, I know that almost a hundred thousand people downloaded the me and white supremacy workbook, which I'm sure blows your mind. And yeah. you have, you have a forthcoming book coming out in February that people can order online now. Um, which is just another way that people can can learn from you in, in your practice and the way that you're walking the walk right now. And I'm just grateful. Um, I'm just grateful that you're here. And I'm grateful that you're you're so compelled by your purpose to keep going. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for being in conversation with me. I can't believe we haven't met before this moment. It kind of blows <laughs> my mind. We were just saying that before the podcast, like, how is it that we haven't met yet? But I'm I'm really grateful to know you. Um, I'm grateful for all that I've learned from you. And I, I know I speak on behalf of a lot of people who have been impacted by you, whose spirit has been changed by you being you, just being you. Um, and, um, and I just look forward to being on this path with you. Thank you. Towards the more beautiful um, side.
sci-fi <laughs> vision of humanity that, that, right. that is evolving and emerging. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This episode's call to action is to look at your own personal complicity within the system of white supremacy. You have to begin by looking at yourself and reckoning with your part, your participation, and your role in changing it. Big thanks to Leila Saad for joining us today, and be sure to buy Leila's book, Me and White Supremacy, at meandwhitesupremacy.com. Oh, and her podcast, Good Ancestors, is not to be missed. You can find it on Apple. You can follow Layla on Instagram at Layla Saad, and please support her work on Patreon. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out.